0: Have you ever been so engrossed, right? so literally taken in with like a film or a TV show, some sort of narrative, that you find yourself literally at some point kind of shouting at the screen or shouting at the, the TV in front of you, yeah? Well, this is how I found myself a number of years ago. One of my favourite TV shows is a show called 24. absolutely love the show. And in one in... I'll try to give me spoilers, but in one of the latter seasons, essentially, in this really big reveal, it turns and it is revealed that one of the main guys, one of the good guys, is actually, essentially turns bad, he, he joins the bad. And, and when you see this, it kind of this very dramatic, you know, one of those moments, right at the end of the episode, and you see this big reveal, and I literally found myself like, No! Don't do it! No! Literally screaming at the TV. And you're asking, why on earth is Daniel saying this? Well, the reason I say this is because when we go through today's text, I get that same feeling almost every time I read it. And I've read it a number of different times, and yet it still seems to grab me each time, and it hits right in the gut as, we, as you helplessly watch David, our shepherd boy, succumb to temptation and lose his way. And there's literally nothing you can do as you see the devastation of his sinful choices written out for all the world to see. So my desire is that we would learn from the mistakes of David and that we would leave with a greater vision of God who even in the middle of our madness continues to pursue us and continues to come after us. So a brief recap. The last couple of weeks we've seen this shepherd boy, David, anointed as king and then victorious over Goliath, fighting on behalf of his people. That's what we saw last week. And At the beginning of today's text we find many years have passed since the defeating of the giant, and much has changed. So Saul has passed away, Saul is killed in battle and in light of that, because of his death, David is finally able to take the throne. After many years of being on the run, after many years have passed as God promised him and anointed him as king, after all those years he finally is able to take the throne that God always promised him. And as he begins to reign, And as he reigns, things seem to be going well. But unfortunately, it is during this time in which David is prospering that he falls into sin. And as we see today, he will he will commit adultery and he'll also commit murder. I mean he will this is not this is David we're talking about. This is the guy after God's own heart And we can easily ask the question which many of us would do when seeing somebody fall in such ways: How, how did he get to this point? Um, A pastor a guy called James MacDonald who wrote a book called Act Like Men describes it this way he says if you have ever stood in the midst of of, if you have ever stood in the midst of moral failure and sorted through the wreckage it leaves in its wake you will have heard the common refrain how did this Happen. And what is clear from David's story is that he did not randomly jump off a cliff one day, but rather it all happened so gradually. David is a reminder that when we fall into sin, it is often a gradual process. In essence, it is a slippery slope that before we know it, leads to destruction. And for David... And often for us as well, it, it first of all began by him not being where he was supposed to be, and this is where we're going to start today. Second Samuel eleven verse one. We've got quite a lot of verses to cover, so we're going to we're going to, we're going to cruise on through. It says this in in verse one, and this is Second Samuel eleven verse one. And if you need a Bible, feel free to, to grab some at the back. This is Second Samuel 11 verse 1 and it says this It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out for battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem. In verse 1 the author sets the scene, it's springtime, the time when kings go out to battle, but David chooses to stay. He sends his men, but he himself remains in Jerusalem. In essence, he wasn't engaged in the battle that he should have been. He should have been on the front lines with his men, but instead he chooses to remain, and the author makes Special note of that, he also makes special mention that, in essence, David wasn't where he was expected to be, and as a result, temptation of inactivity and idleness begin to creep in. I remember there was a once, um, was kind of a little saying that I remember seeing once, um, and kind of, uh, and, it, and it, it, it basically said this. It, Avoid idleness for for lust easily creeps for lust easily creeps in. So avoid idleness for lust easily creeps in, and it's not just the same for lust, but it's often for any and for often many different types of sin. But here in David's case, this is a prime example of that. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this are we and are you beginning to maybe slack on your responsibilities? Are you beginning to become passive and complacent in certain areas? Is idleness and a lack of activity leaving you open to sin and temptation? Verse 2 then says this, and it happened. One evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Question I always ask myself when reading this is what is David doing on the roof? Why why did he go up onto the roof? And the text doesn't say, but Palming wonders if he knew that there was a possibility he would see something that he shouldn't. I mean, did he enter into that environment seeking or secretly hoping he would come across a woman bathing? Either way, as I, say, I don't think the text tells us that for, for sure. But either way, what is clear is he enters an environment which is unwise, and that's the next step we see. we see that often we begin to enter into environments which are not healthy and where temptation is likely. So maybe we begin to ease up on our convictions, and when we do so, it's only a matter of time. And the question is, are we putting ourselves into situations which actually, if we didn't put ourselves into that environment to begin with, we wouldn't fall into that particular temptation. I mean, think about it. Imagine if David had been engaged in the battle as he should have been. Imagine if he had never gone up onto that roof in the first place. Literally none of what we will see unfold in the remaining verses would have taken place. And and, and if if that is where you find yourself now, kind of easing up on certain convictions, actually entering into environments which are just unwise, whether it's hanging out with certain people or hanging out one-on-one with certain people in certain locations, whatever that environment may be and that will differ from person to person, is it putting yourself in a situation where temptation is more likely. And, and and as I say, if you find yourself in that position, do something now, change now. Seek to put something right now before it's too late. James Rod in, in the same book, he uses this illustration in regard to David. It's essentially like David was channel surfing and one look and one look hooked him. It's as if he's kind of flicking through the channels and then he finds something which takes his eyes and then, he, then suddenly he's hooked. And you see in the text, he sees, he sees Bathsheba's beauty and then begins to lust after her, to desire after her. And David essentially committed adultery with her in his heart way before he would do an act or a physical act of adultery. And this is why Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5:27 You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart sin is always a issue of the heart sin is always where it starts and then imagine if as followers of Jesus, that we would confess and repent of our sin as soon as we see it appearing in our hearts. How different our battle and our vessel with sin would be. A guy called Heath Lambert writes in his book, Finally Free, he says this, in that initial moment of temptation, you must begin asking the Lord to forgive you for your lustful desires, and you must ask Him for grace to flee this temptation. When temptation comes, repent immediately. And that's not just for the area of lust, that can be for the area of anything sinful, that can be the area of of anger, that can be the area of jealousy or coveting, it could be any different area, area of selfishness, but whatever that manifests itself in as soon as it comes into our heart and to our thoughts how different our lives would be if in that same moment we repent immediately and in essence well, imagine if David in this moment had repented immediately and literally got the, and literally got the hell out of it he literally, imagine if he had done that. if he would ran and gotten out of there as quick as he could imagine how different things would have been this is what David should have done. And granted, he, he maybe even shouldn't have really, if you think, he shouldn't have even been in that position in the first place. But even when he found himself there, it still wasn't too late for him to repent, to turn and run. But unfortunately, he allows his lust in his heart to grow. It says this in verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman and someone said is this not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite so David goes the next step further and tries to find out who this woman is but sadly even the news that this woman is is married to one of his soldiers married to Uriah one of David's mighty men even that doesn't stop him You see, in that moment he has no regard for the consequences of his actions. He has no regard for this woman. He has no regard for her husband. And have you ever found yourself in that place where you are kind of so hell-bent on sin that you have no thought to those around and the people who would be affected by your sin? In the uh, the States, there's there's a church that runs a ministry called City of Refuge and it essentially it's a residential ministry for pastors in moral failure. And one of the men undertaking the program, so one of these guys who had fallen, he wanted to pass on a message to other men outside of the program. He says, this, this is his message, he says this, you don't realise all that you are giving up in the moment of temptation. So He said again, you do not realise All that you are giving up in the moment of temptation. David, like so many before and after, failed to realise what he's giving up in that moment. But still it's not too late, right? Still, at this point, he can still turn back now. He can still turn away and yet... I mean, this is this is a no-brainer, right? She's she's married. This is this is wrong, David. Surely you know this, dude. This is this is wrong, and yet he still goes ahead. His faults and his desire produce, produce sin, sin. Says this in verse four. Then David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. David commits adultery. David sleeps with another man's wife. What started in his heart becomes a reality. The man after God's own heart gets taken down by lust. This is a sad account and it is a reminder that even the greatest of men can be taken down by this area. I mean, think about it, this was was David, this was the great king, this was a man who truly loved God and yet he was taken down by lust. So we should not underestimate the destructive power of lust and temptation. Because if it can take down a guy like David, then surely it can take down men and women like us. We must humbly, continually remind ourselves This saying, which I'm sure many of us have heard of before, which is, "There I go, but by the grace of God." There I go, but by the grace of God, and it is by God's grace, and it is God's grace that becomes our hope in moments of temptation. First Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 12 to 14 says this. Therefore. That anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. But God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry you see God wants you to endure temptation so much so that he provides a way out and the question is will we take it? will we take that way out? And see David has multiple chances to walk away he has multiple times where there was a way of escape but he chose not to take them So so in our kind of wrestle with temptation, remember these things in your fight against temptation. Remember these four things that these verses in Corinthians tell us to remember. Because remember it says at the beginning of that, therefore, that anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So first of all, look, do not think that you are above falling, but rather take heed and take heed of these four things. And as you take heed of these four things, these... Four things will enable you to stand. They will enable you to endure temptation. These are these four things. First thing is this your struggle is not unique. So that's the first thing whenever temptation often comes. Like we think we're the only person who wrestles with this. And right, man, I'm having these thoughts, or man, I'm having these desires, or I'm I'm acting in this way, man. I must be the only one who struggles with this. And here God says, No, you are not unique in your struggle you're not unique in your temptation your temptation is common to man so remember that your struggle is not unique and therefore that should encourage you to reach out to others to encourage one another who may even struggle with the same thing the second thing he says God is faithful and I hope that you will see this through the remainder of our time in, third, in, in second sermon is this is that God is faithful And in his faithfulness, number three, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Let me say it again, number three. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, I remember reading these few verses only a number of years ago when the realisation comes to this. If if God says this to his people, he says to Christians, okay, look, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you've accepted me as your Lord and Saviour. This is what I'm going to say. God says to us, that he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability which means this slip that round which means that every time I have said yes to temptation as a Christian I had the ability within me to say no so in, those, in every moment where I've had that voice in my head saying you can't, it's inevitable you can't say no you have to give in to this temptation the truth is that that is a lie the truth is I, had, I was able to say no and the reason I was able to say no was not because of my greatness. It's not because of I'm awesome. It's not because of my own strength. But rather wow, in those moments I'm able to say no because of him living inside of me. And that gives me great hope for the future. If I, have to, if I look back in all those times I've fallen into sin in those moments where it just felt inevitable where it felt like I was powerless. I was unable to say no. Jesus opens my eyes and says Daniel, you could have said no and that gives me hope for the future because then when temptation comes again when that lingering voice comes and says you have to say yes, you can't say no I respond with this and say well actually no he's given me the ability to say no and he in his word has said he would not let me be tempted beyond my ability which means if I'm facing this particular temptation it means by his grace and by his power I am able to overcome it and often the way we overcome it is by escaping Number four, the fourth thing he says in that verse is he will provide a way of escape. So look for that way out. Look for it. Look for that escape. God is with you. He wants you to endure. So remember those four things as you fight against temptation. Your struggle is not unique. God is faithful. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability and he will provide a way of escape. And it's in those moments when we forget these things, it's in these moments when we take our eyes off of Jesus. It's in those moments where we fail to fix our eyes on Him, who is able, who is able to empower us to overcome. That's when we begin to fall into sin and even further into sin. And James, the brother of Jesus, perfectly sums it up when well, he says this in James one fourteen to fifteen. But he says, "But each person is tempted." when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And a desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David was lured and enticed by his own desire for another man's wife, and that desire gave birth to sin. But it doesn't stop there. And we'll see that when sin is allowed to grow, when sin is allowed to fester, when it is allowed to continue, it will always bring about more destruction, it will always bring about more death. We see this in the next verse, in verse 5, because David's private sin becomes public consequence. It says this in verse 5, And, and the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. David's sin becomes public consequence. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And with her husband being away at the battle, the battle that David should have been leading, it will not take long for people to put two and two together, right? It's not going to take long until people can kind of figure out what David has done. So what does David do in this moment? What should he do? Does David come forward and confess his sin or does he try to cover it up? Does David choose to try and hide his sin? We see that he decides to take that option. Instead of coming clean, he tries to cover it up. The author of Proverbs writes this in Proverbs 28 verse 13, talking about the dangers of making such a choice. Proverbs twenty-eight, verse thirteen says this whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The idea of forsaking is to literally to cast away. So whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and seeks to cast his sin away will obtain mercy. Concealing you, your sin will only ever make things worse. And often we think we're protecting those we love by doing such a thing, but actually by keeping that secret you, you couldn't be further from the truth. Your sin is already hurting them, and the concealing of it just does even more damage. In those moments, the correct response to our sin is to confess it and to forsake it. We come clean and then completely leave it behind so that there isn't even a trace of what remains. This is the heart of what true repentance looks like. And how different things would have been for David If he would have taken this path of repentance here, but instead he tries to cover it up. Verse 6 says this, Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent, sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. The plan is simple, right? All you've got to do is get, get Uriah, get essentially get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Then once the baby is born, everyone would be none the wiser. David essentially calls Uriah back from the battle, he meets with him gets an update on how the battle is going and asks a few questions and then he sends him home naturally thinking, he hasn't seen his wife for some time so chances are they're going to spend some time together. And then we read this in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David saying Uriah did not go to his house David said to Uriah Did you not come for a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields Shall I then go to my house to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will do no such thing. David forgot to take one thing into account in his plan, and that is the character of Uriah. He is unwilling to go home to spend time at home with his wife while his fellow men, his fellow soldiers, are still fighting on the front line. And I wonder, if, I mean, do you think David gets convicted by this at all? I mean, here he is. David fails to go to the battle that Uriah has been fighting and instead sleeps with Uriah's wife, who he had no right to do so with. And on the other hand, here's Uriah, a man who willingly goes to the battle and a man who won't spend any time with his wife until that battle is done. So what's David going to do now? Essentially that's plan A, didn't work, so David comes up with plan B. and This is plan B. Verse twelve So listen, David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So now, when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And that evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. David's plan B is to get Uriah drunk. And hopefully this will solve the problem. And he does so, but at this point, isn't it, isn't it kind of funny that at this point, David is so far gone that even a drunk Uriah is acting more honourably than David. Right? His plan just doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's crazy the length that David is willing to go to cover up his sin and is often the same is true of us. The, it's amazing the length we will go to cover up our sin. What becomes a little lie then becomes a bigger lie then becomes a bigger lie. And we see in this situation it grows and grows until he ends up committing the most unthinkable of actions. Plan A doesn't work, plan B doesn't work. So he then goes to plan C. Verse 14 says this. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying set Uriah in the front of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. He sends Uriah back to the front lines, carrying the very letter that will condemn him to death. Such was Uriah's integrity. David is fully confident that Uriah is A, not going to look at the letter and B, is going to deliver it safe and sound. I mean, that's, you know, that's commendable to Uriah that he, would hand, that he would without looking hand his own death letter essentially to Joab. This good man this faithful man is about to lose his life not because of anything wrong that he did but because of David. And David has fallen so far that he is willing to send an innocent man to death to cover up his own crimes. Verse 16 then says this, so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. As James said in his letter, sin when it is fully grown brings forth Death, And it wasn't just the death of Uriah, but there were other men killed with Uriah as well because of David's instructions. No matter how private we think our sin is, it will eventually result in public consequences. We never sin in a vacuum. It will always affect us, it will always affect those around us. And what began as a lustful look at another man's wife leads to adultery and leads to murder. We cannot underestimate the destructive power of sin. I once heard this, this saying, this idea, this is, be killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. Seek to put to death your sin, or your sin will put you to death says this in verse 18 continuing on then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and, and charged the messenger saying when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you why did you approach so near to the city when you fought did you not know that you that's the way that they would shoot from the wall who struck Abimelech the son of Jeruboeseth was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tibet why did you go near the wall then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also and so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him and the messenger said to David surely The men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. So this is what happens, the messenger brings word, of, word to David of Uriah's death complete. But David is completely unfazed by this, completely unfaithed. He plays along with the deception. I mean, you know, this is just another unfortunate part of war. Without what seems to be a glimpse of remorse, he sends the messenger back to Joab to tell him to continue fighting. A mother and father have, are now left without a son. A wife is now left without a husband. We read this in verse 26 to 27. When The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It appears that David got exactly what he wanted. Okay, so as far as everybody else is concerned, Uriah died heroically in battle, and David, in his kindness, has taken in the widow, the widowed Bathsheba, to be his wife. Everyone would now just think that the conception took place after they had got married, and if only they knew the horrific truth that had taken place. And although the surrounding people do not know the full extent of the truth of what has happened, there is one who does. One person who has seen everything, every action, every motive from the very beginning. And that was God himself. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The author notes that, that God not only knew and saw everything, but that he also wasn't pleased. God was displeased God was displeased by the actions of David. We come to the end of chapter 11. Our shepherd boy has truly lost his way but God in his grace and in his love is not content to leave him lost. He sends a messenger to open his eyes is sin and in some ways this messenger does this by reminding him of the pasture by reminding him of the sheep and the shepherd says this in verse 1 of chapter 12 then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him there were two men in one city one rich and one poor The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And then a traveller came to the rich man, who refused to take one from his own flock, and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused So yeah, it was greatly aroused against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall sorely die. And he shall assaulte fourfold for the Lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan comes to David. He tells him this story about a shepherd and his sheep. David knows all too well that relationship between a sheep and a shepherd. As he thinks about maybe even to those years when he was a shepherd boy himself. So, but many years have passed and many things have taken place since then and, and angered by the actions of the rich man he declares that such a person should be punished this is what happens, the rich man who has all his herds and flocks when he is visited by a traveller instead of take, killing one of his own sheep to give to this traveller instead he goes to the poor man, he, he takes the poor man's only sheep he then lays that sheep and, and feeds the traveller with that sheep. And when David hears this, he is completely angered by this, but he is suddenly stopped in his tracks as Nathan reveals the true nature of the story. Verse seven says this Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your keeping and you and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if had and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? To do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. It's you David. It's you. You're the rich man in the story. Despite all you had. You took what was not yours. And there are consequences to your actions, David. Remember that quote that we looked at, why at the beginning, from that fallen pathway, he says, you don't realise all you are giving up in the moment of temptation. You don't realise all you are giving up in the moment of temptation. David believed the lie. David believed the lie. He thought his sin would lead to gain, and yet he couldn't have been from the truth. Verse ten to twelve then says this. Now therefore, the, short, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord: Behold, I will raise up an adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour. And he shall lie with your wife in the sight of this son for you did it secretly for I will do this thing before all Israel before the son the results and the effects of David's sin will continue to play out for years and years to come and in our moment of temptation we need To remember that our sin is, is not just isolated to us. It can affect our families, it can affect our loved ones, those we work with, those we have responsibility over. And we would be well served in those moments of temptation to play out those consequences and those results in our minds. To think about the damage that that one choice could do but we cannot solely be motivated by consequences. Because if we do, eventually we'll either A, minimise those consequences in our head, right? We'll say, well actually the consequences, they're not going to be that big. Rather, doing this act of sin is going to be, uh, they kind of outweigh each other. We either, so we, either, we either end up minimising the consequences, or the truth is if the consequences are taken away, then we just, we're, we just easily fall back into sin. Say for example, if we're only if we choosing not to, if we're choosing not to sin in a particular way simply or solely because maybe said one person, this person is, is you know you know this one person is going to give you a hard time if you do this one thing. Well, then if you take that person away, you take away that consequence. If that's the the only thing holding you back from your sin, you're going to go head first into your sin. So, although thinking about the consequences is is a good tool, it is a good thing to do, it cannot be the sole thing that we do, it cannot be the only thing that we do, because as I say, either we'll minimise the consequences, or if those consequences are taken away, we'll fall back into sin. So yes, thinking about consequences is good, but we need to go further, and the place we go further is to is to meditate and to think about the person most offended by our actions, the person most offended by our sin, and that is God himself. In the verses that we just read, we are reminded that David's sin was first and foremost against God. When we read in in verse 9 that David despised the commandment of the Lord, some translations even say despised the word of the Lord. And we also see that David did what was evil in God's sight. Verse 10, David despised God. God himself says, you despise me, David. And then later on, we even see in, in, in 14 in the idea of God being blasphemed. And some translations even say that David utterly scorned the Lord. When we sin. Are we more motivated by what other people think or by what God thinks? Both are important. We should care about what people think about how we act. But are we more concerned about what people think? And we actually are we actually forgetting that our sin first and foremost is about God and is against God. When we sin, we despise God and his word the one who created us the one who gave us life the one who loves us when we sin we sin ultimately against him and yet it's going to be this very same love that God himself demonstrates toward David right here, right now even in the middle of David's most darkest period David is truly lost. David is drowning in his sin. And God comes after him. Even while in David's darkness and David's madness, God pursues him. God sends a messenger to wake him up. To confront him, to open his eyes and to call him to repentance. In essence, to call him back home. And think about it, God is not required to do this. God does not have to do this. God could just leave David as he is, in his mess, completely blinded by his sin, living with this terrible secret and yet God does not do that. Instead, God chooses to go after him. David does not go to Nathan. Nathan comes to David. It's God once again initiating. God goes after him. And perhaps you find yourself in that position. Perhaps you find yourself this you drowning in your sin. And today God is once again pursuing you. God is going after you. God is calling you. He's calling you to repentance. And repentance is this: He's calling you to acknowledge your sin and turn away from it. He's calling you to embrace the forgiveness that he has. Offered, He's calling you home. Verse 13 then says this. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David finally realizes the truth, the true depth of his sin, and he repents. He confesses and forsakes his sin, and as a result, he obtains mercy. He receives forgiveness, and this is how we're called to respond to our sin. We are not called to minimize our sin, we are not called to ignore our sin, and we are not called to deny our sin, but rather we are called to confess and forsake our sin. And that is what it means to repent. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin greater than the grace and great, no sin greater than the mercy of God. And we can, either, we can ask ourselves this, but how? How could God forgive David of such evils? And if we have that mindset, we can easily then make the next step off that is how could God forgive me of such evil? And the answer is found in Jesus. King David has failed. He has failed his family. He has failed Uriah. He has failed Bathsheba. He has failed his soldiers. He has failed his people. But above them all, he has failed God. But one day, another king would come. A greater king would come. A king who would succeed where we failed. An innocent king who would take on the punishment which David deserves, which we deserve, a guilty people, so that we could be forgiven of our sin, including our lust, so that we could be restored to a relationship with God. And that greater king is Jesus. This all takes place at the cross, and in some ways, Uriah, in some ways is more like Jesus in this account than David is. Think about it, Uriah, the innocent man who loses his life because of the sin of a guilty man. Jesus loses his life because of our sin. Unlike Uri, you didn't choose to lose his life and yet Jesus chooses to lose his life on our behalf. And Jesus would then rise again proving that once and for all he had conquered death and sin and now he calls us to turn to him. To turn to him in repentance and receive forgiveness for all the times that we have sinned, but then to turn to him and also receive the power to live new and changed lives so we no longer have to sin and the call to repentance first of all there is when there is that initial call to repentance right, That is that initial when we, when we come to Jesus the very first time saying Jesus, Jesus I'm a sinner, forgive me, I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. There is that initial stage of repentance. And, and if you've made that, you are completely His, and you are forgiven of past sin, present sin, and future sin. But then, as we continue to walk now as believers, as Christians, He will then call us to daily repent, to continually repent. And, and, and a lot of that is not so that we... It's, in some ways, is not to earn us that forgiveness because we're already forgiven but while he calls us to repent daily for our own sake so that because in repentance we our eyes are open to our sin and in repentance we are able to receive his grace and in repentance we are also able to change so this is what Christ offers us and then the, this section then ends with these then following two verses and it's It's a a reminder that although we can be fully forgiven, fully forgiven by God and His grace, there will be moments where there are still consequences that we must face. It says this, verse 14, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And then Nathan Departed to his house. David was fully forgiven. But there are still consequences to his sin. Consequences that would play out for the rest of his life. And the same can sometimes be true for us. Through Christ we are fully forgiven. But there will be times where we may still have to re- face the result The consequences of our sin. But for the Christian, this is not further punishment because all of our punishment was fully paid for in Jesus at the cross but rather these consequences, these results of our sins become God's tools of discipline. God's tools of discipline as a loving father towards a child he loves. Hebrews 12 Verse 10-11 to 11 says this for, for speaking of our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but He disciplines us for our good And why? Why does God discipline us for this? That we may share in His holiness For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. it You see, a truly repentant person accepts the consequences of their sin. They don't try to hide from them and as a result they experience discipline that leads to godliness, that leads to to sanctification that leads to a changed life that leads to a changed heart the consequences were severe to David a reminder of how devastating sin can be but as great as his sin was God's grace was bigger as great as your sin is God's grace is bigger so repent Confess to fake your sins. Don't let it continue to grow. And experience the grace, the forgiveness and restoration that Jesus, our good shepherd, offers us. And as many of you would know, that David would go on to, that this, this, this first child that David had as an act of adultery, the child would lose, it, lose its life. But we do know that by God's grace, through David and Bathsheba would come a second child. Come another child whose name would be Solomon. And it's through this line that one day our great king Jesus would come. And it is on that cross that Jesus would die for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins but also so that we could be changed. So my invitation to you is this, is to, is to develop that habit of repentance. That we would be quick to repent, because let's be honest, we don't want to have to, to learn our lessons, we don't have to, to go that far down that line. Let's, let's be quick to repent soon, so we are saved the pain and the devastation which can come. And instead, as we repent, we then receive life. And our, in, in closing, I want to end with Psalm 51. This is this is David's psalm. This is this is David's part of well, what is going on in this moment? And Psalm 51 is great because, and, and many of the psalms are, because you can use it as your own psalm. You can take it as your own psalm. And in those moments when we sin, we can adopt this psalm as our own. And this is a a real this 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 psalm for us also reveals. David's heart. David is truly repentant, but it took God's grace, it took God's pursuit of him, it took God's confrontation with him to open his eyes to the truth. It says this, Psalm 51 in closing Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin, sorry, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part of you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice, and hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways And sinners shall be converted to you.
1: Deliver me from the guilt of
0: bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion, beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And then they shall offer balls on your altar." It is through Jesus that we can experience the loving kindness of God. It is through Jesus that we experience the multitude of his tender mercies. It is through Jesus that our sins are blotted out. It is through Jesus that we are washed thoroughly from our iniquity. It is through Jesus that we are cleansed from our sin. It is through Jesus that we are made clean, we are washed, we are made whiter than snow. It is through Jesus that we can sing again with joy and gladness. It is through Jesus that we receive a clean heart and it is through Jesus we receive a steadfast spirit. It is through Jesus that we can look upon our salvation. And that salvation is Jesus. So let us pray together. And then let's sing one more song as well. In response, as we, as we sing to God and say, and you see in that psalm, song, that psalm that, song that David is saying, because of what you have done, Lord... He sings now. He he rejoices now. And we have that same cause to rejoice because through Jesus we are forgiven of our sin and through Jesus we can be changed so that we can endure and overcome temptation. And that is all through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you Lord, I thank you, Lord, that despite us being in our sin, in our brokenness, Lord, that you continue to pursue us. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that, that, is, just not, that is not just true in David's case, but it's true in our case. And if we find ourselves Lord, in that position today, Lord, we ask that you would like open our eyes to it, Lord, that you would confront us in that, Lord, and as we are confronted, we would be truly repentant that we would confess our sin and then we would forsake it. We would cast it away, Lord. So, Lord, reveal the areas where that needs to take place, Lord, and ultimately we want to come to you and we want to say thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are the God who forgives us. And thank you, Lord, that you are the God who changes us, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn from the mistakes of David, Lord. That we would seek to put sin to death immediately. That we would seek to repent at the heart level immediately. So that we can enjoy you more. So we can be a blessing to other people more. So we can experience the abundant life that you promised us more. And Lord we thank you for the gift uh, of confession. The gift of repentance Lord. And Lord we, we, we just want to sing to you now. As we acknowledge Lord that you, you pay for everything Lord. So Lord may we humbly when we do fall confess our sins we mean to face the consequences, Lord. And those consequences are not there as for us as judgment for us as Christians as well. As Christians they become discipline. It becomes your way of shaping us. And yes, that, that shaping can be painful, Lord, but help us to humbly trust you as you allow those things to play out for our good. So, Lord, we want to thank you, Lord, that you are the God who forgives, you are the God who restores, Lord. And we come to you, Lord, and Lord We we, we want to confess to you, we are sinners, Lord. And Lord, empower us to put our sin to death now. So we want to sing to you and say thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.